Well, again, let me say good morning and welcome to you. I'm so excited. Merry Christmas. So excited about this week. Uh, I, I hope you're already beginning to select. Think about which one of the three carols and communion by candlelight services you'll be at. Just to reiterate, just to over-communicate so we're all on the same page. 2 o'clock, 3.30, and 5 o'clock p.m., Saturday, Christmas Eve, those services will be in the sanctuary. And then we'll wake up Christmas morning. And if you missed the welcome earlier, let me just restate what BJ said. The services, our worship services will be at 8 a.m. in the sanctuary and 9.30 for this service on Christmas Day. Uh, so the change there would be no Sunday school and the, the 10.30 service, this service, we moved to 9.30. So uh, uh, you may wonder and you may be asked by your child, you know, if, if, especially if you open some presents on Christmas morning, can we bring these new toys to church? Because remember, we're all going to be in here together, a family service. Our children's minister is going to have a children's sermon for the, for the kiddos. Um, I will try to rein in the length of sermon all right, and, uh, and we'll try, and it's, it's going to be great, welcome me in here. So, but a kid is bound to ask, can I bring a toy here? And I would say, um, you know, does it fly or spit or shoot? Because uh, if a drone flies by and I get a Nerf dart in the head, I, uh, you know, it'll be, yes, bring them. Okay, <clears throat> so that'll be Sunday, so looking forward to it. I'm in a series I'm calling The Gift exchange. And if you've been part of this series in the four sermons leading up to Advent, the four Sundays of Advent, this will be, today will be the fourth. We've talked about how what God wants to get to you and what God wants to take from you. Uh, the idea for the topic gift exchange comes from these uh, white elephant gifts, or some of you call it a dirty Santa. You know who you are. And there's sort of an act of faith, right, where you're like, well, I don't know if I want to let go of the gift I have because I don't know, I don't know what what that gift all wrapped up is, I, I don't know if I want that. It might be something I don't want, or somebody might be trying to tr play a trick on me where I've got a really good gift and they've got a lousy one. And you know, I think a lot of people, when it comes to God, they have this sort of, uh, so many people, when it comes to faith in God, there's this sense that somehow God is trying to take something from you. That so much of the perspective of heaven is, is that God is on the take that he's trying to get. And I'm, uh, the message of the gospel, and really the message of Christmas. It's a lot of things, but it's not less than the message that God is not so much trying to take something from you as he's trying to get something to you. God is trying to explain to a lost world, yes, I'm trying to take, if he's trying to take something from you, he's trying to take the ashes of broken dreams, like Isaiah 61 says, and he wants to give you beauty for ashes. He wants to take, we'll look at the next week, uh, uh, your fear, that anxiety, and that, 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 that thing that, that holds you back. He wants to give you boldness for fear, as we saw in Acts 4. And last week, he wants to give you living water for your spiritual thirst. Jesus said, if, if you'll come to me, fill you with the Holy Spirit in such a way that out of you will flow rivers of living water. Come to Jesus, and water always finds a way. You drink deeply of the gospel good news of Jesus, and let that water go to all the broken parts in your life. And today, to put a bow on it, I wanted to draw all these themes together and do a message on the one gift exchange that makes all these other gift exchanges possible. The one gift exchange without which none of these other gift exchanges can happen. And so to do it, we're going to uh, uh, get this gift exchange from a text where we meet a very shadowy character in Scripture. Uh, 
Turn to Mark chapter 15. We meet a shadowy character. I say shadowy character because even though he's got a lot of verses, he's mentioned in all four Gospels. He gets, somebody counted, he gets 38 verses of Scripture about him. That's more, if you're keeping score, that's more than like Judas. I mean, there's a lot of like famous Bible characters that don't get nearly that many verses about him. And the character we're going to meet, you've heard of, we just don't know a lot about him. The character you're going to meet is Barabbas. Barabbas. So for our final message on gift exchange, Barabbas is going to help us see what God is trying to take from you and what God is trying to get to you. Mark 15, we uh, uh, kind of back up the story. We'll start in verse 6. Before we meet Barabbas, we actually have to meet uh, Governor Pilate. And so if you're note-taking, that's actually going to be the outline. That's going to be the way we walk through this text. We're going to talk about Pilate. We're going to talk about Barabbas. And we'll talk about you. Pilate. Barabbas, you. So here we go. First we meet Pilate, but we'll get to Barabbas. Now at the feast or festival, he, means Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now I'd like to give a little context, a little background here. Where are we? What, what festival is this? What feast is this? Who's uh, Pilate? Pilate. All right. Poor Pilate. Pilate is a man under stress. <laughs> Pilate is a governor in the Roman Empire. They kind of broke, uh, broke up this massive empire. Caesar broke it up into these more manageable provinces and areas. And poor Pilate is wondering how on earth he got assigned to this podunk outpost of the Roman Empire. He does not want to be governor over Judea. He does not want to be there in Jerusalem. And somehow he got assigned this. This is not a choice assignment, you understand? And so his, his thinking is, how do I get out of here? If I can just keep the peace, if I can just survive this long enough to kind of increase my seniority, and maybe I can get a transfer to like, you know, Sicily or something. I want to be somewhere on the beach. I don't know. Here I am, stuck here, and Pilate doesn't care. You read the story and you read the passion narrative. You know, we're kind of in, in, the, in the, the last week of Jesus' ministry, Holy Week, and he's going, and that's where we meet Pilate. And so you, you might think he's a religious person. Pilate doesn't care about religion. Pilate doesn't care about the Jews. Pilate doesn't care about Barabbas. Pilate doesn't care about Jesus. Pilate doesn't care about the chief priest. Pilate cares about two things, and two things only. The first is Pilate cares about grain. You heard me, grain. Why? Because Caesar has a massive empire that he's got to feed, and he needs grain to do it, right? Caesar's empire, the Roman Empire, eats a lot of grain, right? And these are Italians, right? Pasta. They, need, they love carbs. So you, see, his job is to do what? His job is to keep the grain flowing back. He's in a, an agriculture, a very high-producing, high-yield agricultural part of the empire. And so this little bread basket, their job is to continue to keep that grain flowing back to Rome, right? And the other thing he cares about, he cares about grain and he cares about taxes, Caesar loves to tax these people. This is Caesar's money from Caesar's perspective. And so as long as he can keep the grain and the taxes, that's what he cares about. If he can keep the grain and the taxes flowing back to Rome, then maybe, just maybe, he can, you know, advance and move on and get out of this, you know, get out of the sticks and and, and get somewhere that he really wants to be in the Roman Empire. But he got it? That's Pilate's position. Now, what would really upset him? If that's your goal, the biggest headache he's got would be an insurrection or a rebellion among the people. Why? It's not because he's actually scared of a rebellion. You think that keeps Pilate up at night? (laughs) Caesar 
wants his taxes, and Caesar doesn't care how you get the grain and the taxes. You've got the whole force of the Roman army behind you. Does that make sense? So, so at no point is Pilate staying up at night worrying, oh no, what if there's a rebellion? What if there's an insurrection? Rome will come in and crush it. That's not the problem. The problem is when, when the Roman army, you know, can you imagine some people rise up? We're not gonna, we're not gonna take it anymore. We're gonna overthrow the yoke of oppression. And these farmers would take their farming implements and fashion them into weapons of war. You think Pilate's not worried about that. The problem is Rome would come in and just mow it down. Well, the problem is if you come in and crush all of these insurrectionists, those are good farmers. <laughs> and, and, and Pilate can't keep the grain and the taxes flowing if all of his workforce is dead or in prison for a rebellion. Does that make sense? So he just wants, he just wants this done. The one date that was circled on Pilate's calendar every year, the date that would give him the most high blood pressure, would have been the Feast of Passover. Now, he's got all these problems, but they really come to a point at Passover. Now you've got all these Jewish people descending on the city, and they're celebrating. What are they celebrating? Well, from Pilate's perspective, they've got this holiday. We know it's from the Bible. We know it's God's word. But Pilate wouldn't have respected that. He would have just said, they have this custom, they have this holiday, and here's what they're celebrating. Now think about this if you're a Roman governor's perspective. Here's what they celebrate. They celebrate the day. They were slaves to what they considered a pagan ruler. They were slaves in Egypt. And with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, their God enabled them to throw off the yoke of oppression. They were able to get out from under the rule of Egypt, and Pharaoh and all his army died in the Red Sea. And they celebrate that every year. Now, from Rome's perspective, uh, that's not a holiday that they uh, really like to honor, right? He knows every and every year, sure enough, at Passover, this Messiah talk would bubble up. This talk of rebellion just like, they, just like our forefathers did against Egypt. Let's throw off the yoke of oppression to Caesar. Yeah, we're God's people. And all they needed was an anointed one, a Messiah to bubble up and to lead them. And they could, they could throw, throw off this, this oppression from Rome, right? Every year this would happen at Passover. And sure enough, right around that feast, there, there, were all, there would be these would-be messiahs that would bubble up. The, the, these rebels who would say, you know, if Rome wants their grain and their taxes, let Rome come get it. You know, we're making a stand. And we meet, in verse 7, we meet one of those rebels. And among the rebels in prison, you see how far his rebellion got, right? Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So Pilate knows he's sitting on this powder keg about to blow, and every year he's got this thing he does to kind of keep the people calm, to keep the peace. It's sort of like, like throw them a bone. What he would do is he would, he would release to them one political prisoner. And in this way, it wasn't a real threat to him, but uh, it, you know it might be ostensibly, but at least it would keep the peace. So there was a lot of give and take. He didn't want to give up a political prisoner and sort of fuel that that rebellious spirit, but at the same time, if it kind of just the goal of Passover for him was just survive, right? Just get everybody back out of the city and back into those farms and producing the grain and producing the taxes. This year was different. This year, not only it, it wasn't Barabbas and his and his uh, uh, comrades that had fought in the insurrection. This year at Passover, there's this. They're talking about this this anointed one, and somebody used the word king. And that definitely got my attention. And they're talking about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Now remember, from Pilate's perspective, he didn't care about Jesus. It's not like Pilate heard the name Jesus and Pilate thought, Jesus, Jesus, 
Jesus. There's just something about that name, right? No, from Pilate, that's the point. There was nothing about that name. He didn't care at all about Jesus. But what got his attention was he was really a man of the people. I mean, this guy had incredible charisma. They were talking about him like he was some sort of miracle worker. And so he's got his eye on this guy. And, and, and king of the Jews, is this one of these messiahs that's going to lead the people? But then, once he captures him, it was actually the chief priest who handed him over, and he, inter- he has a trial with him and interrogates him, he realizes this guy's no threat at all. Apparently he has a kingdom, but it's not a kingdom of this world, and Pilate very much cares about a this world kingdom. So he's, he realizes Jesus is no threat, and so Pilate's like, this is perfect. Light bulb goes off for Pontius Pilate. He, he, he thinks, I've got a way out. This is great. This is great. Every year I can do that thing I do where I release a political prisoner, but I can release to them Jesus of Nazareth. And since Jesus is no threat at all, it's perfect. It's like win-win. I can, I can act like I'm really doing this really magnanimous thing and, and giving them Pilate, but on the other hand, I'm giving them Jesus who's no threat to my kingdom. This is perfect. I mean, Pilate really didn't want to crucify Jesus. I count no fewer than four times Pilate tries to let him go. So this is his way out. Verse 8, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them. This is where he lays out his plan. He's thinking, this is perfect. Finally, he thinks, finally, something's going right for Pilate. (sighs) This is it. This is going to be perfect. Caesar's going to hear about what a brilliant move this is, and he's bound to promote me. And he answered them saying, well, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Thinking, why would I ever do that? I mean, king of the Jews. This is obviously a a messianic figure. No one he's going to really. Look at verse 10. Pilate's not naive. He's not an idiot. He knows what's going on. He perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He knows this man, Jesus, hadn't done anything wrong. And so he's going, well, I understand every year I do this thing where I release a political prisoner. Is this what you would have me do? Would you have your king of the Jews? No, and it's going to be a win-win. But what happens next, no one could have predicted Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate's like, okay, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And Pilate said, well, they're probably going to want both. They're going to want Barabbas and. So he's, he's already preparing to negotiate a little bit. And Pilate said, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. Pilate's thinking, now that escalated quickly. I don't think that was in Pilate's plan at all. Pilate, why? Because verse 14, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Pilate knows Jesus didn't do anything wrong. What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And there it is. There it is. Now we see Pilate's real motivation. Pilate was just, Fear of man. He was just scared. Pilate wanted to do whatever would keep the calm, keep the, 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 keep the peace, keep the crowds happy. So that's Pilate. I told you it was Pilate, Barabbas, you. Now we come to Barabbas. Who's Barabbas? <clears throat> Barabbas is a tough character to study because there's not really a whole lot uh, to go on. Even his name is cryptic. <laughs> do you know what his name means? Bar Abba? <laughs> it literally means son of father. How helpful is that? It's like naming your child, child. (laughs) So his whole life, he's like, I'm child H. McMahon, B. 
the H is for human. I'm perfectly generic, you understand? Here you got a guy named man, basically. Okay, so there's no help there. That we learn from all four gospels, he's a thief, a murderer, and above all, a rebel. Now, when you see that in the gospel thief, we've got to talk about that in a second. Um, I've, I've, I've talked about this before some, but you know, you may be confused. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. You know that, right? And so um, the Greek word there is lestes. What, what is the idea that the thieves, if, if you're like me and you've heard about the crucifixion process, you've heard about how much torture it was and how much agony and they would leave them there to die, you might scratch your head and go, Rome was crucifying people who were thieves? I'm just saying the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime. It seems a little extreme, right, to think, man, why? Well, here, you need to understand. Uh, those guys up there on crosses, they called them the thief. You've heard of the thief on the cross, right? So the thieves on the cross, they weren't up there for shoplifting. Uh, you got to understand whose world you're living in. If you go back to 30 AD, whose world is it? It's Caesar's world. So from Caesar's perspective, these insurrectionists, these who would rebel, they would incite the people to do something in particular. Rome didn't really care if you worship. Yeah, you want to have your little worship. You, you want to worship your God, whatever. Rome would let that go. They, they had all sorts of gods. That didn't bother them. And they didn't really care if you had that Messiah talk every now and then. Eh, you know, people talk. That's no big deal. But, but where, where you go from not in trouble to big trouble, not altogether unlike this country's own revolutionary war in the 1700s, the, the, the big moment, right, the Stamp Act, it was, it was the Tea Party, it was... The moment you go from Rome doesn't care to now you have Rome's attention is these insurrectionists would incite the people to no longer pay taxes. That's when it became a big deal to Rome. So you can imagine Barabbas and he'd get his friends and they'd get a group of people and they would say, if Rome wants their taxes, let Rome come and get it. And Rome would very much come and get it. And they would crucify these, and they would say they're thieves. Why? Because from Caesar's perspective, everything in that empire belongs to Caesar. So those taxes are not yours. It's not your money to be rendered unto Caesar. It's Caesar's money and needs to be rendered back unto Caesar. So if you withhold taxes from Caesar, you are robbing from Caesar. Therefore, you're a thief. And in that battle, and when Rome would come to crush that rebellion, you would, you would fight for your life. And many times, you, you, of course, you would take the life of a Roman soldier. Now you're not only a thief, now you're a murderer. But the point is, you were a thief and a murderer because deep down, you were in rebellion against Rome. That's why they call it the thief on the cross. That's why it's sometimes it's a murderer and sometimes a rebel. That's the point. I want everybody to see that. It's an important point. It may not seem important right now, but hold on to this thought. Barabbas was a thief. And he was a murderer, but he was only a thief and a murderer because he was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. Okay, so that's who Barabbas is, sitting in the dungeon of Pilate's fortress, awaiting for the torture and death of being stretched out on a Roman cross. And Rome had no problem with this. I mean, at one point, the Bible tells us they crucified 2,000. And they would, can you imagine? They would hang them up on these highways in such a way so that passersby would have to literally walk past. On your journey, you would walk past a man writhing in agony and slowly dying on a cross. Rome's message was simple. Anybody else want to rob from Rome? Rome's got plenty more crosses. So that's Barabbas. Finally, you. How are we going to do this? How do you get from Barabbas to you? Uh, come on, be honest. What does a, a, a murderer, a thief from 2,000 years ago have to do with you? 
That's a stretch, isn't it? A murderer? 2,000 years ago? I mean, come on. And the answer is, well, in a way, nothing. But in another sense, everything. Let me explain. I, I doubt I'm going to be able to convince any of you that the bridge between Barabbas and you is murder. <laughs> I mean, I doubt that's the connection. I don't think that as I'm preaching here, some, someone's falling under conviction. Barabbas was a murderer. Somebody here like, yeah, you know, that's me. That's one. <sighs> my continual murder of others. It's one of my worst habits. And preacher, it just feels like you're preaching to me, you know. But that's it. I've been a serial killer, and I'm right now hiding from the law at the 1030 service at First Baptist. Shh, you know, right? I mean, okay. Now, obviously, if that is you, then by all means, like after the service, please come forward and talk uh, to a deacon. Talk. Uh, <laughs> I will be busy, but a deacon would be more than happy. Uh, <laughs> so I doubt, right? I mean, we laugh at that because it's like that, that's the point, right? That separates us chronologically from Barabbas 2,000 years, but morally, we're separated because we think, well, I don't do that. I'm not a murderer, all right? So maybe thief. I'll try thief. It might be a little more likely that there might be among us a, a, a real burglar, a thief, you know? But once again, I find that to be, for many, too far of a bridge. I, mean, well, I, I didn't steal from anybody. Okay, okay. But that's, that's like Jesus' point, isn't it? I mean, we're able to separate ourselves from these symptoms, but Jesus says it actually goes deeper. It, it, it goes to the heart. So I, I don't know that I'll convince anybody like, hey, you know, Barabbas was a murderer 2,000 years ago, so let's, let's use him as an example. I think people are like, eh. Or he was a thief. I think people are like, eh. What about, let me try this last one then. What about insurrectionist? What about a rebel heart? Barabbas had a heart that didn't want to be ruled. Barabbas had a heart that wouldn't submit. Now, we could argue whether or not he was right or wrong, whether or not it was a legitimate governing authority in Rome. That's not the point. The point is he murdered and he stole, but it was all ultimately because he was committing treason. It was his rebel heart. It was a heart that didn't want to be ruled. In fact, when the Bible talks about Barabbas and his murder, it, it's actually the murder is the afterthought. The Bible doesn't even focus on the murder. It focuses on the rebel heart. He's described in Luke, uh, Luke 23. You don't have to turn there. I just put it up here for your, just to consider. In Luke 23, it describes Barabbas. Watch this. Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city. And like for murder. What? <laughs> like some translations actually put that in parentheses to show this is parenthetical. The point is not he's in jail because he's a murderer. The point is he had a rebel heart. He's an insurrectionist. And from that led to murder. He had a heart that was full of pride. He had a heart that was stubborn. That, that's it. It's about this, it's about this rebel heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, this was saying earlier, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points this out. He's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, hey, you guys are focused on the symptom. What about the heart? He talks to the Pharisees. He goes, you guys are congratulating yourself because you've never committed murder. But do you realize that's just because you didn't have the opportunity because the seed of anger that grows into murder is already germinating in your heart. He goes, you guys are congratulating yourself because you've never committed adultery. But that's just because you didn't have the opportunity because the seed of lust is already in your heart. With Barabbas, we see the murder. We see the theft. But it's, the, it's, it's that he's committed treason. Jesus gives a spot-on definition of sin. 
Uh, sin being a, a posture of rebellion against a God who's given us everything. And all manner of sins can flow forth from that posture of rebellion against God when he tells this story. It's in Luke 19, and he, he gives this uh, parable. He said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. That would be a whole sermon unto itself, unpacking what Jesus meant by that. But he's, he's basically going off to be uh, uh, knighted and, or, or somehow given jurisdiction over this kingdom, and he's going to come back. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, this uh, a pile of money. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Everybody get this picture in your head. That's the heart of sin. It's cosmic treason. It's saying we don't want our rightful king. If Jesus were telling this parable in 2022, a modern version of this parable, he might say the same parable, something like this. Imagine you're going away on a long vacation, and so you hire someone to house sit. Got it? He's going to keep watching over the house, water your plants, feed your pets. Hmm? It's going to be great. While you're on vacation, you start getting these really weird text messages from, from your neighbors and people who are driving by, and apparently some odd stuff is happening. <clears throat> apparently, this person you hired to house sit has begun redecorating a little bit. Yeah, there was a contractor crew at your house. Now, you don't mind this person tidying up. That would be nice, but this is a little different. This is like full-blown remodeling. And then you're hearing word that he has gone out to your mailbox, and he has scratched your name off the mailbox, and he's put his name up on the mailbox. You're starting to wonder, what is going on here? He has renamed your pets. What in the world is happening? And then he begins to get access to one by one your bank accounts and your credit cards. And he begins the laborious process of taking your name off of these bank accounts. And he begins uh, putting his name. And he's meeting with the county clerk's office to get that deed of uh, transferred in your house. Put it into his name. And, and, he begin, and worst of all, he is putting his dirty feet up on your coffee table. Did not use a coaster. And he's having, uh, he's having his friends over and sleeping in your bed. He's taking over your house, right? And you, well, what, would you make, what would you think of all that? You, you would not be okay with that. You would say, I think you have really misunderstood how house-sitting works. While you're a house-sitter, you're, you're free to be a steward of all these things, but it seems you've got it twisted. You, you thought you were the owner of these things. Jesus is saying, that's the heart of sin. That's the heart of rebellion. Now you tell me. Imagine that, 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 that crazy notion that someone would just come in to the house that belongs to somebody else, someone who's generously agreed and letting you be the house sitter of all this and enjoy all this property, and you begin to act like you're the owner and you begin to change things around. You would think, that's crazy. Who would do that? And I submit to you. I mean, let me just ask you. Who of us, at some point in our life, is that not exactly what we've done to God? How is that not exactly at some point in your life what you've done to God? God has given you everything. The fact that we're breathing is a gift from God. Every good gift in your life, look around, look up, look down, look inside, look all over. Every good thing you see, it's a gift from Almighty God. And sin is the rebel heart that says, you know what? Like a house sitter would say, you know what? Why don't, 
I tell you what, why don't you never come back from vacation? Why don't you just keep sending the checks, but I'm running things now? Is that not the heart of sin? I tell you what, God, you keep sending the blessings, but don't get it twisted. I'm going to be in control of things. That's the heart of sin. And any manner of sin can spring forth. Any number of sins can come forth from that posture. Would would Barabbas murder to stay in control? Absolutely. Would someone steal? Would a sinner steal to stay in control? Absolutely. Would they lie? Would they tear somebody else down? Would they do all these sins? Yes, if that's what it took. But the, the heart of the matter is every sin is cosmic treason unto a holy God. And because of a rebellious heart, that's what we're guilty of. So it it took me a circuitous route to get there, but does everybody see what I'm saying? You may not think like, well, you know, I'm a million miles from Brabus because I've never murdered. I'm a million miles from Brabus because I've never stolen. But don't you see, it's the same seed of a rebel heart. I I talk a lot about the seed and the soil. Don't ever get it twisted. Don't, Don't ever congratulate yourself just because you had different soil it's the same seed of sin in all of it. You know, like, I, 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 I always scratch my head when people, they read some terrible thing on the news, and they always go, well, I just don't understand how anyone could do such a thing. But when Christians read that, Christians more often than not, they don't say that. What they say is, but for the grace of God, there go I. Because they realize the same seed of wickedness that's in every sinner. It's in me. Like, let me explain it this way. I, I grew up in a family, like the seed of, let's, let's just do anger. Let's do anger. I, the seed of anger in me. I grew up in a family with two loving parents. And a, so when there was anger, we would solve our anger issues with things like words. And we would reason with one another. Well, good for us. But what if, you, uh, what if you grew up in a family with different soil, see? In my family, the seed of anger was in there, but the soil was we would solve it with words and we would settle this. What if you grew up in a family where the soil was we solve problems of anger with fists and then eventually knives and eventually guns? Am I supposed to congratulate myself because I've never murdered someone. It's the, just different soil, but it's the same seed. And who knows what this seed would have germinated into if it had been potted in different soil. Don't you see? I can't congratulate. Man. That, that's Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't, don't wear yourself out congratulating yourself. Just because you had, fortunately, you had some better soil in some areas of your life. What about the heart? What about the seed? Barabbas' heart was a heart of rebellion. And if that's true, that we are guilty of that, a heart of rebellion toward a holy God, then that makes us a whole lot more like Barabbas than we'd want to admit, doesn't it? You could even say, I am, in that sense, Barabbas. Well, if you're a rebel who's willing to throw off the rule of the king and take matters of salvation into your own hands, then that describes Barabbas, that describes us. And if that's true, this last part should be chilling because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It is no different for Barabbas. So if we can just zero in on that day about 2,000 years ago, Barabbas is in that Antonio, Antonia fortress there, Pilate's dungeon, 
And the, and the wages of his sin is death, and he knows it. He knows he awaits nothing but death by crucifixion. I imagine Barabbas could perhaps hear outside that prison, he could hear the Roman soldiers putting the finishing touches on his cross. And as they were nailing together that cross, you can just imagine as they're putting together this instrument of execution, Barabbas's mind knowing that he was going to hang there in agony and die between his two fellow rebels. You imagine the Roman soldiers were talking. Yeah, we're scheduled for three crucifixions today. And maybe they even mocked Barabbas. You know, they were good at mocking the people they crucified. Yeah, that Barabbas is a big talker. Oh, that Barabbas, he sure was strong. We'll see how strong he is tomorrow when he's dying up here on this cross. Huh. And they know, and he knows, that the next time they open those prison doors, the next time Barabbas sees the light of day, it'll be the last day he lays eyes on. They're going to come get him and they're going to say, come on Barabbas, it's time to pay for your sins. Hmm? So imagine, <laughs> if, imagine if you're Barabbas and when you're ready to hear that door open and that fateful day arrives, they're on the Passover and you know that the crowd is a powder keg and you wish you could have done more as an insurrectionist, you failed and now it's time to pay for your sins, murder, theft, insurrection. They open up those doors. Imagine you're Barabbas, and instead of hearing, come now, it's time to pay for your sins, let's go. Instead, you hear that Roman soldier say, you can go. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, you can go. They took some guy, Jesus, instead of you. Excuse me? <laughs> well, who, who's Jesus? What did he do? What's he about? Hey, buddy. I just work here, okay? Don't ask me. I'm not a theologian. All I know is you can go free and get to live because they took Jesus instead of you. Hmm? Verse 15 says it all. Again, willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. I want everybody to see this is the great gift exchange to which every other gift exchange depends. Every other gift exchange depends on this. He gives beauty for ashes. He gives boldness for fear. Jesus gives living water to all who thirst for this reason. On the cross, he gives his life for yours. That's the point of everything I've been talking about. If you don't get anything else, get this. That verse right there is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. The point of Christmas is substitutionary atonement. Those are big words. Substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary, as in one took the place of another. Atonement, an offering that makes peace and forgiveness. Substitutionary atonement. That is the heart. The musician is going to come and lead us in a time of response. Don't, don't, get, don't let anything else crowd out this gospel message. On the cross, Jesus gave his life for yours. He, he died. If you think about it, if you think about it, Barabbas, that cross was meant for Barabbas, and Jesus went to his cross. If you think about it in that way, the only person in the history of the world who could literally say, Jesus died on the cross that was meant for me. He died in my place on a cross meant for me. The only person who could literally say that is Barabbas. But there's a sense every Christian knows that we can all say that, can't we? And he died in my place for my salvation. Now, now, 
just, just so we're perfectly clear here, just so everybody understands the metaphor, when I talk about substitutionary atonement, this is the heart of the gospel. God loves you. God made you. He made you in his image. You're so special to him. He loves you. Problem. Sin separates us from God. Even bigger problem, sin demands justice. Why? Everyone who's ever been robbed from, everybody who's ever been hurt, everybody who's ever been abused, everybody who's ever been a victim, you know to just sweep that under the rug means there is no justice, and that can't be. That's not right. So sin has to be dealt with. We know, though, at the same time, that we're not only victims, we've not only been sinned against, but everybody in here, unless we're incredibly self-righteous, everybody in here agrees, but we've also been the sinner. We've been the one who's hurt people. So yeah, we've been sinned against and we demand justice, but we've also been the sinner. So how, how can it be, how can justice be poured out for sin and yet the sinner not be crushed by that justice? How can there be payment for sin so that, so that God is, is proved righteous and just because he's a good God, and yet how can he be merciful to save sinners? And the answer is substitution. The debt for sin was paid on Calvary's cross. All the punishment and wrath for sin was poured out, but not on guilty sinners. It was poured out on the sinless, spotless Lamb of God Jesus. He died in our place. And that means to all who will receive him, if you will transfer your trust to Jesus, if you will take your life out of your own hands and you will give your life to Jesus, make Jesus the Lord of your life. Surrender your life to him. Confess him as Lord and believe on your heart. God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you'll be saved because of this great gift exchange. All your sin laid on Jesus and all of Jesus' perfect standing with God the Father given to all who believe by faith. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. But to someone who would, who would object and say, but, that, but, that, but that's not right. Exactly. That's not fair. Correct. But, uh, Barabbas was the wicked one. Jesus, that's right. Barabbas was a murderer, a thief, and an insurrectionist. Jesus didn't have a rebel heart. Jesus never rebelled against God. Jesus was obedient to God all the way to the cross. And thief? Jesus did the opposite of thieving. Jesus didn't steal your lunch. Jesus gave 5,000 people five loaves of bread and two fish. He gave away everything, didn't he? And murder? Murder? Jesus never murdered him. Jesus did the opposite of murder. Jesus was a healer. Jesus would heal people. And then, and then, when he would come across occasionally people who were dead, he would bring them back from life, bring them back to life. Jesus literally unkilled people. He did the exact opposite of murder. He loved everybody. So, so you're exactly right. The, the just died in place of the unjust. The giver died in place of the thief. The one who healed and gave eternal life died in place of a murderer. That's exactly right. That's substitution. Now you've got it. Why would, why would anybody not receive the good news of the gospel? What if you're here in this room or you're watching this on YouTube one day and you're hearing my voice? Why, why would you not give your life over to Jesus Christ? Why would you not receive the good news of the gospel? I'm asking a serious question. Why? And if I'm asking a serious question, I think a serious answer would only be, 
I think there might be somebody who would say, because I'm too far gone. And to you, I would say, Barabbas was too far gone. That's the point of the gospel. We're all too far gone. And if anybody in here says, well, I'm not too far gone, I'm doing quite well. They're the ones that are not going to get saved because they're too self-righteous. No, if you're too far gone, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for anybody to get cleaned up. He didn't wait for Barabbas to change his life. He took Barabbas' place while Barabbas was still very much in sin. That's the point. That's the good news of the gospel. And to somebody who would say, yeah, but I'm, I, Tom, this is all good. This is good stuff for Christians to hear, but I mean, who am I? I'm nobody. You tell me Jesus died for me. I'm nobody. Barabbas was literally a nobody. His name means person. <laughs> yeah, I'm nobody special. Hey, I get it. I get it. We all watch these movies. We all love them. Whether, you know, these big epic three-hour movies. It's Braveheart or it's Lord of the Rings or whatever. These big armies are smashing into each other. And at the end of it, you go, wow, the hero who we love, they always die for like the princess or they die for the king or they die to save the kingdom. Nobody ever dies for random soldier number 18, right? Nobody ever dies for like, you know, thousands of soldiers out there and there's one, that would be anticlimactic. And so I get it, We, we think that. There's a bunch of nameless, faceless people. Listen to me carefully. To God, there's no such thing as a nameless, faceless person. He made everybody. And he loves you. And you're special to him. The only reason I think somebody would miss the good news of the gospel is pride. If you say, I don't need it. I don't need this gift exchange. I don't need anybody to die for me. If you're here today and you would say, if you've never felt the sting of your conscience pointing out your guilt, you're right. I don't, I don't know. If, if you would say, I've never felt hurt. I've never been heavy or weary laden. I've never been crushed by the weight of anxiety. I've never felt, I've never felt that, that, that terrifying feeling of nihilism. When you look around and have those moments, what, if it, what, what is it all meaningless? And what if none of it's real? And what, if you've never felt that pain and you've never felt the guilt of your own sin, then you're right. I, it would be very difficult to enter this kingdom if you felt you had no need for the king. And for that, all I can do is pray that God breaks through that pride. The self-made and the self-righteous and the self-important, they're very hard for them to surrender. I grant you that. But to those who are weary and heavy laden, the invitation is come and receive the greatest gift exchange, his life for yours. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone here who needs to receive this good news and be saved today, that they would transfer their trust to you. If they're watching this online, they're watching this right here in this room, they're hearing your word and the good news proclaimed that it's not too late. So God, grant that. To anyone who's hearing this who is going to laugh it off because they're filled with pride and they don't see their need for a crucified Savior, To them, I pray, oh God, you'd be merciful and shatter their pride. Put to flight their blindness. Be resplendent, oh God, and shatter blindness and deafness and a hard heart. And to anyone, oh God, for anyone who is a believer, oh, let today be a day of great joy as the gospel runs deeper into who we are, that it would 
so fill us and saturate us as a gospel people, oh Lord, that we would, we would see your good gospel grace go to all the broken parts of our life and all the insecurities and weaknesses and all the, the sins and all that, oh God, would be flushed out by your Holy Spirit as we drink deeply of this gospel good news and we hold so tight to it until we get to the point where we acknowledge the gospel is in fact holding us. Grant us that, O Lord. Grant us that this Christmas that we might treasure this great gift exchange and share it far and wide that you, the righteous, died for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of invitation, which is just that. It's an invitation. It's not a coercion or a manipulation. It's just an invitation. Would you stand to your feet? If you need to receive him, you come. The words of this song are so simple. You come out of sadness. You come wherever you are. If you want to receive the Lord, if you want to pray with somebody, if you're a believer who just needs a time of prayer, that's okay too. Scott will be here to receive you. Speak to you if you need. You do as God leads, Chuck. Come.